This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 166 brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by John Eric Setzels, VP Identity and Innovation at Signicat, to discuss identity. Identity is a sempiternal theme in the digital world. We've covered it once or twice before, and I don't think we need to preamble very much about it at all. In this show, we're going to focus on the scalability of identity verification. You, or your fintech, may have got AML, KYC, and all that jazz sorted in the single market you're in. But what happens when one day you decide to take on the world, or rather, a few more countries first? Signicat is an expert at this. They are in nine physical locations in Europe, and alongside its global partners, such as Onfido, can offer worldwide identity verification services. And it doesn't get much more scalable than that. So, as tech never sleeps, but always marches on, Let's dive into the challenges and successes of establishing identity worldwide and find out how hard it really is or not. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, John Eric. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hey, great to be here, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. And in the virtual world we're in these days, we have uh, here's which are which are often theirs. Um, normally, uh, for, for, for six years, all, all of the here's, virtually all 99.9% of the here's were here in the same place together. But you are in a country, which when we spoke earlier, a couple of weeks ago, planning this, was very sane. And you tell me it's got slightly less sane now, but it's still far more sane than the UK in many, many ways, actually. And it's a first for the show because uh, I'm very glad today to be speaking to uh, somebody in Norway, which is a, a, a first. We haven't actually touched on Norwegian fintech so far. Curiously, it's, a, it's an omission now, looking back on it, I can't account for. Yeah, no, it's interesting uh, times. I mean, we are very far in digitization in, in Norway and the Nordics in general. We've come pretty far along that. And, you know, more or less a cashless society as well. Although this morning I called and, and asked for uh, to, to book uh, the flu vaccine. And I was told, well, they prefer if I pay cash. And I think that's the first time I've heard in a decade. But uh, this was for COVID reasons. They didn't want everybody in, you know, touching the terminal and stuff like that. So they, they want preferred cash payment. But except for that, I mean, we are a pretty cashless society and pretty far away in, uh, in, uh, in digitization. Yes. And to give me some kind of feel or the listener some kind of feel, how big is fintech per se in, in Norway? So I think we started quite early. I mean, the, my main bank, which is now called Espanken, was founded 20 years ago. And it's a digital-only bank. They did not have branches. And at the time they were, were starting, you know, everybody was laughing, you know, hey, you're not going to have branches. You're not going to have fee on transactions and all that, you know. But they really started early and, and became really successful in this digital-only bank, providing really good services. As I said, Norwegians, we are far in digitization and really open to adopting services like that. Yes. And in terms of 
sanity. I mean, there are, of course, many ways in which Norwegians are, are far more sane than, than we are over here. I think there's probably one in which you're even more insane than us, in that you sort of, almost all of you live further north than almost all of us. And, and I consider London as, as far too north. I consider it a mistake that the sort of the paleoliths made. We can't bother to go there. The weather's rubbish, which is what the Roman soldiers all thought, poor things, when they, when they came up here. But anyway, apart from the fact you're a bit further north, which we can't really blame you for, one of the, the great things that Norway did, being a sane country, was when this thing called North Sea Oil came along. In the UK, we spent it and, and actually we created marble palaces all over the country. So we have a beautiful architecture. Actually, no, we didn't do that. No. In fact, what did we do? I can't remember what we did, actually. Anyway, you Norwegians <laughs> went, oh, this is a windfall. Let's save it. And now you've got sort of roughly the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. And you all have to work about 10 minutes a week and the rest of it, you have people peeling your grapes or something like that. So that was immensely <laughs> wonderful idea. And we have literally nothing to show for all that money. It is tragic. And then the second regard is that without going into the world's most tedious topic too much, the UK gets more and more insane, more and more unevidence driven over something which is responsible for, well, I think, the 26th leading cause of death in, in the UK. And we're using this to destroy businesses by the tens of thousands and people's lives. We are doing what Einstein said, which is the definition of insanity, which is repeating a policy that didn't work in the first place and expecting it to work this time round yeah, in terms exactly. of locking everyone down at home. Yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so that when, suddenly when we spoke last time, you were a thousand percent more sane than Britain in that you guys were very sensible, not only very sensible, but you have honest and professional officials. And I, I did note earlier in the year, I think your chief medical officer came out and said, I'm paraphrase, we're terribly sorry. We panicked a bit there. We thought it was going to be really bad. It wasn't. And actually, it wasn't actually very useful locking you down and all that. So sorry. And, you know, these are the facts, which is which is marvellous and entirely lacking over here. But anyway, since that, you tell me that actually in the autumn, RTIs, upper respiratory tract infections, they go up everywhere. Uh, and of course, they're going up in Norway. So where is Norway on the sort of sanity scale? If the UK is at minus 100% out of 100, <laughs> you're definitely way above zero. <laughs> well, I'm not going to give any metrics to that. <laughs> I mean, decisions on saving the income from the oil has been, I mean, that's been managed fairly well. There's been some agreement pretty much across different political parties. You know, we need to save and, you know, pension funds for uh, and so on. So I think that's pretty good. <laughs> As for, for handling the COVID, I mean, it's been been pretty open with information. There's always those people that complain and uh, don't like what it's done. And, you know, giving the open information is confusing. A lot of people want this black and white. And, of course, we all know it's not. It's, uh, you know, all kind of, of shades and gray. And, unfortunately, we see, you know, there's been a, a outbreak in, uh, in Trondheim, in my city, now where it turned out one infected person had visited seven different restaurants in a night. He was very hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Loss of taste, and therefore you need more food to taste <laughs> yeah, it or something. something like that. So, but they, they, they've been challenged uh, finding all the people visiting because not everybody has written down the real name and the real phone number in the logs there. So we have those kind of people there as well. So, but in general, I you know I think we've handled it pretty well in in Norway. Yes. Well, good luck to you all, and I'm I'm very pleased because it's always the case. I think that in terms of what's the best way to be sane. The best way to be sane is to not go insane in the first place, because <laughs> once you've gone crazy, and I mean in governance-wise, institutionally, you know, it's a, it's a long journey back from there. For sure. Anyway, talking of long journeys, you've been careering for a while. And so how did you start careering and how did you career into 
to where you are today. So it's it's been a very interesting journey. I started uh, back in 1984 was my first job. I was working with Chelex and you know not everybody even remembers or knows what that is but that's you know you had a physical teletypes and uh, you were sending a lot of international business that was done over Telex. It was actually legally binding because every character you sent was received or uh, if the receiving end was out of paper it you know you couldn't send it. So I started there. Uh, I was a programmer. I programmed email system X400, X500. And what languages were you using back in the day in 84? Well, I learned a lot of Pascal and uh, I was working for Nostata and we had a programming language called Plank which nobody has heard of. So it's uh, very Pascal-like, actually. So I've done, you know, my fair share of programming email systems and and so on. But you didn't start at the bottom of the food chain with COBOL and banking systems? No, I skipped COBOL and and Fortran. I've done some, you know, machine language stuff and uh, and stuff like that. But uh, now I've, uh, I've, you know, joined just after the COBOL wave, I guess. That's very fortunate. Well, as I mentioned before in the podcast, my dissertation was porting a Modular 2 compiler from VAX to an IBM mainframe. And, and of course, Modular 2 is the sort of, uh, you know, not quite object-orientated, but it's a modularized version of the old-fashioned programming languages and, and something in the direction of turning things into modules and, and objects and, and all that kind of jazz. So you started life as a programmer in telexes. And you're a young man. I, I, I sort of uh, started work a whole year before you, but I remember telexes uh, way back <laughs> in, way back in the day. And they were very important in banking. Yep. The feature you mentioned was super important, which is that every character was basically guaranteed to get there. And they were legally binding. And exactly. you know, going back to digitization, one of the challenges has been, and of course this leads into our topic today, which is that you know if I sign something you send me some document and it comes back to you with my signature on it. How do you know I signed it? Uh, so, that, you know, that's, that's non-trivial challenge. So from the programming then, um, where did you go from and there and how did you end up sort of coming up to where you are today? So I started uh, actually a big p- project for Sweden Post uh, doing X500 and, you know, importing identities and so on. And that was, you know, 25 years ago. And I, you know, look at that. That's my start of my identity career. Worked with creating identity management systems. Uh, worked for SAP for seven years as an identity architect for their SAP identity management uh, solution. And now I've been with Signicat for the last six years. And now I am uh, working in marketing, doing presentations and so on. And of course, my previous programmer colleagues looks at me funny, you know, say, okay, I've gone to the dark side and, and so <laughs> on. But, you know, I enjoy what I'm doing. And in, in between all this, I've also been doing some teaching on college, teaching security, identity, uh, that sort of thing. So that's, you know, a short version of my rather long journey on, uh, on this topic. Yes. And before we dive into the sort of professional aspects of identity. Let's just talk sort of very briefly, uh, ask you about your opinions on the social aspect of identity uh, these days. You were talking about lots of Mr. and Mrs. Donald Ducks visiting restaurants in Norway, just as they do in in London, uh, apparently. And uh, the whole uh, Orwellian phrase over here, uh, track and trace, you know, we're, we're very much in a society where the powers that be would like this panopticon where we're all spied all the time and tracked and traced everywhere and all that kind of stuff, which is very concerning. If you go back to the sort of the early days of, of programming, when I was at university, there were still some of the original hippies. There was a chap who walked around the computer lab with no shoes on and had sort of long hair, which hadn't been washed for a, a few months by the, by the looks of it. And there was very much a libertarian perspective in it. And when the internet came along, you know, in the early days, everybody would give themselves uh, any old name online and you know, let it all hang out. Do you think, just on the bigger picture, before we come back to sort of the narrow banking topic, do you think that anonymity is going to survive all this uh, elimination of cash, tracking and tracing everybody all the time, quotes for your benefit, unquotes? Or, or do you think that sort of uh, anonymity is rather sort of uh, shrinking? 
in this world. I mean, I quite like being nobody going nowhere. It's a Dzogchen phrase, you know. Sometimes I'll go to Canterbury and wander around the cathedral and have a coffee. Nobody there knows me. It's just nice being nobody and not nobody knowing. And, you know, it's not, I'm often doing nefarious things. I just don't like the idea of being tracked and traced all over the place. So, I mean, a lot of the challenges we are facing boils down to an identity challenge. I mean, who are you? And do we really know your true, need to know your true identity or do we need to know something about you or don't we need to know anything at all, about you at all? I mean, anonymity is uh, a can of worms because on one side we say, well, I, as you said, you want to go to Canterbury, you want to be, you know, nobody should know you're there. But on the other side, we have accountability. And how do we match those two? I mean, if you're 100% anonymous, doing something online, you know, encouraging to illegal uh, operations, you know, things like that, you're stalking somebody's daughter. I'm pretty sure most people would say, well, we'd really like to know the identity of that person stalking my daughter. We don't want that person to be anonymous. So how do we handle this challenging problem of, yes, we want to be anonymous, but we also want people to be accountable if they break the law or don't comply to the terms and conditions. And that is a challenge. Yes, and I think, of, I mean, of course, you've thought about this for 25 years, so you explain it clearly. So the philosophical challenge here, as you say, is the balance between the state tracking crime, should we say, just keeping it in very simple terms, and the individual's right to be an individual. And that very much relates to where we are on COVID uh, and all that kind of jazz. I think that tone is changing here. I mean, the, the, you know, the conspiracy theorist phrase, which the CIA trotted out in the 60s to discredit anybody, you know, disbelieving sort of the, the official line about what a Kennedy investigation or 9-11 or, or whatever, is, or COVID, or conspiracy theorists. I think it's slowly changed. I saw, I saw um, a meme today uh, about, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just do my research thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I quite liked, actually, because, you know, uh, I, I've given up following all this stuff in detail, but... Uh, if you read Agenda 21 for the United Nations, or you read Agenda 2030, or you read the World Economic Forums of the Great Reset on their own websites, <laughs> there is plenty of interesting information, shall we say, there, which is not a conspiracy theory. It's what, it's what they're saying about where things are going. So I think the overall thing will boil down to what is the relationship between the state and the citizen. That has changed massively. And clearly there's a desire um, of the state to have more and more information on individuals. Anyway, let's put that to one, one side because um, we don't know, although it will affect all of us in our daily life. And let's dive into the more practical fintech challenge, which is if I want a, a, a bank account in Norway for the sake of argument or Revolut or Monzo, I've got expanded into, into Norway and I'm doing banking transactions. And let's just take a, something in my favour. Somebody's trying to pay Mike Balliman money. I want to make sure that Signicat or your clients in Norway manage to get the money to me and not to somebody else who's pretending to me by Balliman. So exactly. it does actually cut both ways. So I kind of, having done a, a number of shows on this, think it's kind of obvious why in the financial context, let's just narrow, narrow down from social context, in the financial context, companies need to understand identity. Is there anything with your long experience of it that you'd like to say about aspects of why it matters that aren't particularly understood? And, uh, and, and before we get too much into the some of the sort of details is that the youngsters, if I may say, that the twenty-somethings and early thirty-somethings say, "Oh, it's to stop crime. It's to stop crime." Well, of course it is, but I think that again is a little bit naive because if you look at what all the secret services do around the world and uh, you know people trafficking, arguably there's more crime than ever. So yes, it's there to to stop crime, but at a more sort of practical level, why does identity matter? So you need to know something about your customers. You need to make sure that if they, for whatever reason, do not fulfill their obligations, you need to be able to know who they are. 
I mean, as you said, the anti-money laundering directive is a central part of this. We want to try to reduce, you know, terrorism, human trafficking, and, and, and so on. So that's in core. And of course, banks in general are very keen on following the regulations. And I mean, there's been plenty of cases where there's been big fines uh, on, you know, violating the anti-money laundering directive. But in general, and, and it depends on your business. I mean, if you're selling flowers, what do I need to know about you? Well, if I get your payment, I need to know your address to deliver your goods. That's it. I don't need to know your age or, you know, your preference for this and that. And I think a lot of, you know, organizations fail on that by asking too much information when it's really not needed. While if you're doing monetary transactions, well, of course, you want to make sure, I mean, if there is a fraud, you want to make sure that you can reimburse the, the people. You need to know that they are really, you know, trustworthy, etc. So identity is important, but at different levels, depending on the kind of business you're in. Yes, I like your nuanced reply. I mean, at a simple level, if you're a financial organization, there are regulations and you have to follow them. Regulations are made, uh, as Sir Paul Tucker has said, by unelected officials. That's a separate sort of uh, challenge there. Anyway, so the first thing is you've got to follow them. And let's put all the sort of fighting terrorism to one side. Uh, Terrorism seems to carry on uh, regardless, actually. And the more practical stuff around online fraud, that's a huge deal for all of us (laughs) when we're online. We want to be very careful around that. So given that, for the sake of argument in London, fintech's been going... 10 years, you know, a lot of them found about around 2010. That's quite a while. All the fintechs in London who are sort of successful uh, will be doing a, a KML, a, a YC or one of these things, AML, KYC, <laughs> mix all the letters up, there'll be a regulation long soon enough. So before we dive into scalability, what would you say that the, the challenges are of identity at the moment for financial organisations and for fintech in this digital age before we get on to, and then how do you do the same in a thousand countries? So I'd like to refer to a research where we are in the process of releasing this is actually the fourth edition of that. It's something we call the battle to onboard, where we've asked normal people in six different countries about their experiences with financial services and onboarding and some other stuff. It's, it's quite some interesting information. And a lot of people abandon digital onboarding. They actually, I mean, you have attracted people to your website. People start the process of going through that stuff of onboarding. And this year we found that 63% abandoned. Six out of 10 people decide, you know, I was so interested, I wanted to become a customer, but then for a number of different reasons, they decided, now nah, uh, I'm going to skip it. And it means that the onboarding process is, you know, too slow, confusing language, provide too much personal information, different reasons people abandon. And that is a big challenge. How do you get new customers when so many are running away. Yes, and I, I like that practical focus and getting far away from the philosophy stuff. I will include a link in the show notes for listeners who want to download your research so they can check it out. But that definitely sounds very interesting. And I'd, I'd heard similar numbers and I'd like to read the, the research myself. And I had an experience of this. Recently, I was ordering some port from Waitrose and they got a particularly good deal on at the moment. And there's a 33 pound vintage port going for 25, which is incredibly cheap. So the ordering stuff was fine. I click complete order. And it sits there and just hangs and hangs and hangs. And we're contacting your bank. Yeah, 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 yeah. And after a while, I gave up. It was ridiculous. So annoying. Killed it. So I I went back to the order again. I clicked it again with a different card this time. One was a credit card. The other was a debit card. Different banks. All that kind of just hanging, hanging, hanging. 
oh, I'll give it. And then eventually I was about to give them a second time, it came through. And then, cut a long story short, more recently I got an email from wait- Waitrose saying, why haven't you collected your order? I replied, I have collected my order. They said, no, you've ordered twice, 10 minutes apart. Uh, the person <laughs> Great, who was yeah. sending that email hadn't actually spotted, I wouldn't want to buy the same order every 10 minutes. Exactly. So, And it was, it was precisely in that kind of stuff. So that was actually the opposite example, where I quit the process. I quit the, it's not quite onboarding, but it's the same kind of mentality. I quit the purchasing. But actually, it turns out that actually it had gone through anyway. So fortunately, they are a good shop and there's no problem with the refunding and blah, blah, blah. But if they wouldn't, they could have said, well, you ordered it twice. You click the button, our terms and conditions, page 5,000. You know, your problem, not ours. Yeah, I know. And and I mean, another example, not banking, but I mean, I was uh, traveling once and I wanted to buy some uh, some concert tickets. And, you know, I selected the tickets and selected could buy and they more or less wanted my life story. I mean, they <laughs> gave me a full page of fields to fill in with my home address and my telephone number and my email. And I had to have some password recovery questions like my mother's maiden name and, you know really i'm gonna buy these tickets i'm gonna do it once i'm never probably coming back to this place you know well i really wanted to see the concert so i went through with it but that's you know example of collecting way too much information that you don't really need yes so let's stick with this practicality which is if you're a fintech uh, or you're a business of any sort how to get people on boarding uh, we've touched on two aspects there which is the sort of the, the speed of it happening and also not making it sort of a burden around your client's neck so let's just start with a national context, I don't know, surprisingly enough, how it actually works in Norway, but how does, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about international, uh, how does identity work in Norway? I mean, you're a person with a bank account for getting the day job and all that kind of jazz. Uh, you go to websites, they want to know who you are, blah, blah, blah. How does it work over there? We have something called Bank ID. It's issued and run by the banks. So it's a validated identity and it's reusable. And that, that's two important qualities of an electronic identity. They know who you are, so they have you know my identity and I can use it for multiple purposes. And the coverage in, in Norway or the Nordics in general is higher than 90%, so pretty much everybody has it. And we use it on average between four and seven times a week for all kinds of different purposes. So whenever I log into my bank, I use my bank ID. If I go to my insurance company, if I want to do my taxes, I use my bank ID to identify myself. If I would want to open a bank account in a new bank, I would use bank ID. But also to more normal examples, if I'm going to sell my car, I would use bank ID to confirm the transfer. And the buyer would do the same thing and that would take care of all the paperwork. No need to visit any office. When you have a baby in Norway, you're going to give it a name. Both parents need to agree on the name. Guess what? You use bank ID to sign off on that. And if you want to go to a tanning salon, which are regulated, you have to be over 18 and most are unmanned. Guess what? You use bank ID to prove your age. So for us, it's you know an integral part of our daily life. Everybody has a bank ID. Everybody knows how to use it. And of course, that simplifies a lot that you have one verified identifier that you can use for a lot of different purposes. Yes. So I think the only thing confusing me there is that if you hadn't told me the name, I would have thought that what you're describing is an, a national identity card. Mm-hmm. Irrelevant to, to whether it's bank or whatever. I mean, how does it work? Do you get a bank ID as a result of opening your first bank account as, as a child or something? And then that ID card works something else? Or you get to 18 or we get to zero and the state said, here's your bank ID thing. And, and actually, they could have just called it, here's your national identity number. Yeah, well, as you said, I mean, it, it, for all practical purposes, it is, you know, a citizen or a, or a you know, public EID, but it's, it's run by the banks. And the way you get it, you onboard in to a bank. I mean, uh, how do you bootstrap this? The first time, of course, you need somehow to show your physical identity paper, show yourself. In most cases, this is done by 
sending a registered mail to uh, in post you need to show up at the post office show your identity paper and that sort of proves your identity and then you have the bank account and that will issue this bank id and then you can activate bank id mobile which a lot of people are using uh, onboarding you have the second factor so whenever i go to website i log in i get a pop-up on my phone saying i confirm logging into this site or i will confirm signing this document I confirm with my pin code and and that's the process so it's it's actually quite simple to use as well so no it's it's not government uh, run but it's used by the government like i said i can do my taxes i can log into the tax portal and do my taxes with this bank id i see so if i was a conspiracy theorist i would say that the banks have clearly got a strong interest in tanning salons because if you're if you're an off the grid hippie at the age of eighteen and you want to live uh, even further north than than and Trondheim and you, you don't want anything to do with anybody, you won't be allowed to go to a tanning salon because you haven't opened a, a bank account, presumably. Yeah. So I mean, one reason that this works in Norway is the degree of trust. In general, the trust between people, the trust from people to government and banks, is fairly high in the Nordics. So this model we're, we're having works very well here, but it's not necessarily transferable to other countries and trust is an important because we do trust the banks i trust my bank not to misuse this information in the same way i trust my bank to when i say i'm going to transfer money to you they they're going to do that and not do something else yes and norway's got what population of about five million or something yeah. so it, it's much smaller i mean the uk is probably about 70 the, these days yeah. and far more heterogeneous population i mean when i did a gig in in iceland it's something like i don't know 99.2% Icelandics. Right. So they are higher trust societies. Well, as you know, in the UK, just taking a, an example moving out, we don't have national ID cards. Uh, the Labour government did look at doing them. It's a very controversial thing, largely because we don't sort of really go that way. But having said that, I've never quite understood the, the point in practice because if I get a new app bank tomorrow, it will want to see my driver's licence which is a driver ID, which is, which is unique. It has a number on it, it has my photo. That is very, very unique. But also, it may or may not want to see my passport. And again, my passport isn't a national ID card, but it's got a unique number on and, and it's got my photo on. So it isn't 100% coverage, but I would have thought the vast majority, I don't know the number, of adults in the UK have either both and a driver's license and a passport, and that is what is used elsewhere. So Norway's sorted, should we say, just keep it simple. So coming out of Norway and expanding into these other countries around Europe, how have you found that you can scale Signicat's identification verification in different countries with different cultures and different levels of trust and all that kind of jazz? Are there a number of models? Is sort of, you know, are there the Nordics that do things relatively sort of sensibly and then UK is a bit crazy and France and Germany are similar. I mean, how does it work? So, I mean, Nordics is about 26 million people and it's pretty much similar models in the, in the different Nordic countries as well. But there's no cross-border. I mean, there's been some exper- uh, experiments on this, you know, doing cross-border, but I can't use my Norwegian bank ID outside Norway. Challenge, of course, if you're an international bank, you want to operate in multiple countries. Well, you need to integrate with these different schemes because they have all different ways of doing that. You have Norwegian bank ID, you have a Swedish bank ID, you have Danish, what's called NEM ID, which will change name to MIT ID. You have the Finnish Trust Network. They're all different. That's what we provide as a company. We provide this interface between there. So if, if you're a bank, you want to operate in multiple countries, hey, we provide you one API with access to these different EIDs. And that simplifies, you know, onboarding, it simplifies electronic signatures, it simplifies authentication. You asked about different countries, and, and what we're seeing now is the, that EIDs in a similar model as the Nordics is 
rising in the Benelux area. Netherlands, for example, have a bank-driven identity called IDIN. They have a government-driven identity called DigiID. So two different schemes. I'm sort of hoping that they could, you know, at least you could use your, I'll call it bank ID for simplicity, also for government stuff, but it's not there yet. But that is hopefully is going to change. Belgium is using It's Me. They're really high on electronic signatures and have that regulated and so on. So they're using that a lot. So we, we see a rise. They're still far behind both coverage and, and usage than the Nordics, but it's, it's coming and a similar model. Also, Germany, we're seeing uh, they have the national identity card, which everybody has, which is also digital. But most people don't know that there's a digital part of it. And those who know don't really use it enough. And there are not a lot of use cases. So, so that's the challenge. So that's the national identity card. And of course, you have the, the private initiatives, the YES and the VERIME initiatives, which are bank-driven and uh, private-driven identities. And we see some, some take-up there as well in, in the identity scheme. And of course, uh, I have to mention Estonia, which of course uh, has gone very far. But remember, it's, you know, they, they have some cha- uh, advantages being a very small country. And this is driven really hard by the government they are in a position to demand usage and so on, which would be, I think, pretty much impossible to do the same thing like in the UK to enforce the usage. So in Estonia, I mean, you can use everything governmental, digital, except marriage and uh, transfer of properties. I see. So in terms of how you do it, as you say, in those countries where there's super high coverage of whatever ID scheme it is, whoever started it, it doesn't really matter, it could be the bank's ID, or it could be Tanning Salon's ID in Finland, whoever started it, started it, but then there's a unique ID. You sit above that and give a sort of a meta ID, which will sort of uh, put those together. ID in itself is spreading for obvious practical benefits for, for, for all concerned, even if there are worries about it, it's misuse. In a, a lot of European countries, so if you're expanding in for the sake of argument, Signicat goes into Estonia, let's say you're not in Estonia, you go into Estonia, you go, oh, hey, this, this is a good country because they've already got something. We just need to hook into that. And that won't be very hard. Or you go into somewhere, I don't know, let's choose one totally off the top of my head, Albania, another country ending in IA like uh, Estonia, which probably doesn't have the sort of same culture. Although actually given Enver Hoxha, it may be more into sort of the government know who, who everybody is all the time. But let's say they don't have uh, an ID scheme or you're somewhere like Belgium where it half has an ID scheme and half doesn't. You plug into the ID scheme and then, then how do you approach expanding into the rest of the country? For the sake of argument, let's say 50% of Belgians don't use that ID scheme uh, or 50% of whatever country that uh, we want to think of. How do you then set about uh, doing the ID? So let's say in this totalitarian future we're ap- approaching rapidly. I need to know everybody who listens to the podcast. To listen to the podcast, you have to give me your name, the time of, time and date where you were listening, who was present with you at the time, you know, all these parameters. Um, so it's not just banks now, it's podcasts. And, mm-hmm. and I need to know that somebody in Belgium uh, I need to know the name and where they listen to it and all this kind of stuff. And this person hasn't got the ID card. Uh, but I sign up with Signicat because I, I remember you in a couple of years' time when this is all done. And I think, oh, I'll contact John Eric and he'll sort this out for me. He'll give me a button to press or some API or, or all that jazz. From your perspective, how do you hook into countries that have no ID scheme or countries that have half an ID scheme or 90%? How do you get the rest of the coverage? Exactly. So, I mean, if you, if you don't have an EID... How do you prove who you are online? And that, that's the back to the core uh, question, right? How do you do it in the real life? Well, if, if we met physically, I would show you my passport and you would see my face and you would compare my, the picture on the passport with my face. So you would know it's a real person in front of you and you would actually hold that identity paper, my passport, which is 
has a lot of mechanisms that make it hard to, to f- make a forgery. And online, we're with, with teaming with partners, and you mentioned on Fido, and we have others as well, to do the similar thing online. I need to prove I'm in possession of an actually identity, identity paper, and that's done by typically taking a picture of it and analyzing the picture, but also, for example, NFC reading that you have the chip, which is even more difficult to, to forge. So then you can prove you're in a possession that the user is in possession of an actual identity document, and you'll get a picture out of that one. Then you will ask the user, hey, take a photo of yourself with your cell phone. There's going to be some liveness detection. Maybe you're told to smile or turn your head left or right or say something. It's on a video or move the camera back and forth. I mean, a lot of different mechanisms. So now you prove, okay, it's a real person here. It's, it's not you trying to be John Eric, but it's actually John Eric being here. And you get a picture out of that, and you compare the picture from the identity paper. You know it's a real identity paper. You know it's a real person. You compare those two, and then you have a fairly certain degree of, you know, you, you know that this is the person you are talking to. Okay, so that I understand. And we could do a whole podcast on limit cases, which are always the most challenging ones. And we've almost done a whole podcast already, so let's not go too far down the rabbit hole. But let's just take a very simple example as a Gedanken. So let's say I have an Id- identical twin and it looks identical to me, very identical, because identical twins are, are more or less the same. That's obviously uh, an immense challenge, just to take one limit case, as I say. There's a lot of, of challenges around uh, biometrics in general, and, and that is, of course, one of them. Identical twins will have slightly different fingerprints. They will be similar, but not identical. Over time, they will have slightly differences in uh, their appearance as well. But yeah, this is uh, challenging. But I mean, another challenge on this is inclusion. Of course, the biometric, the face recognitions, they work really well on people like us, you know, men in, in Europe. But if you have darker skin, for example, not all these work really well which is another challenge related to this. So it's definitely, you know, how, how do you handle those borderline situations, which is really important to handle. Yes, well, I guess the answer is that if you're a fintech, then you, you don't worry about that kind of stuff because you sign up with someone like Signicat or, or Onfido and you delegate the, the challenge to them. And, and you know, that's why you guys are in business because if it was sort of very easy, I'd, like, I'd write half a dozen lines of code myself. And as you say, there are, there are many cases like that. And before everybody got hysterical on matters of race, hopefully it calms down after the US elections. I found this myself when I first did a lot of business in Japan. You know, at, at first, Japanese did all look the same to me. Now, that's not because I'm a racist, but it is because Europeans have got really strange hair compared to almost the rest of the world. We've got very different colours of hair mm. and very different styles of hair. And you go to Japan, and actually what I realised is why I had problems remembering who was who at the beginning, was I just, over whatever it was until I started doing business in Japan, 25 years, the algorithms in my brain had gone, oh yeah, John, he's got sort of, you know, a peppery grey beard and, and, you know, sort of grey hair. Whereas Janet, she's got blonde, long hair. So the hair colours are a huge thing. So actually, what I found is after not very long at all, actually, the brain reprograms itself. And when I'm looking at Japanese, I'm not subconsciously spotting their hairstyle or, or their hair colour, but actually one's looking much more at the, at the facial features. So I would have thought that to a certain extent, if you sort of train the software, uh, it would work. But then I'd be interesting, and it's of course a very unpolitically correct thing, as to whether the software finds it harder to train itself to recognise, say, Japanese, compared to, say, Europeans, where, you know, just on skin tone, there's a lot of difference between a Norwegian and a Greek. Yeah, no. So just very briefly, rather than, say, diving down that rabbit hole, from a commercial perspective, Signicap will sort it out for you, is, is the answer. Um, where do you think all this is going in the future? How do you see the future of ID on, on an increasingly globalised world? I like to look at this, that 
each and every person has a digital double, right? I'm a physical person and I have my digital double in cyberspace, which is the one I use to log into banks, insurance companies, which also owns my assets. And of course, the challenge is binding me as a physical being to my digital double. So, so nobody's going to steal it and, you know, take up loan in my name, etc. And we talked about biometrics. And I, I think the, 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 we've come to a point where we're saying, well, one single biometrics is probably not enough. You need to use multiple biometrics, collecting from multiple sensors. I like to call this dynamic biometrics. So you're picking up the way you walk, for example. My phone is connected to my smart, smartwatch. If it's disconnected, then it's a signal that, you know, something is wrong. So, I mean, my example, if you take my, my phone and you ran away with it, the phone would disconnect from my watch. That would be a signal. It would be disconnected from my Wi-Fi. That would be a signal. And the phone would say, Mike is running. John Eric never runs. So that would be another signal, right? So you collect all these different parameters to make a whole picture of a person and, and binding it to your digital twin in uh, in cyberspace. Right. So the answer is digital doppelgangers then. And um, my digital doppelganger does all sorts of bad things online. It isn't really me. It's got a whole life of its own. <laughs> and that's another sci-fi series. Anyway, before we wrap up the show today, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I hope uh, you know who you are and your state knows more or less about who you are. Uh, and certainly your bank knows who you are, especially if you're receiving payments because you don't want to miss, miss them. I'd like to thank my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk, theunlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So, John Eric, we've mentioned Signicat uh, once or twice. Um, just very briefly, if we're in this totalitarian world where I need to identify KYC every listener, <laughs> I better not say that before you know it, it'll be true. And I think, oh, OK, I'll, 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 I'll do Signicat and they'll sort it. How does it actually work sort of very briefly? I mean, do I sort of get an API? So we have nothing on premise. We deliver all these services in cloud. And importantly, we do the entire customer journey. So f we talked primarily about, you know, the first time you sign up, we need to get to know you for the first time. And we can do that with EIDs, as we mentioned, or by scanning identity documents. And also what we didn't mention, we could do, we have partners doing video interviews. You would do, you know, an interview to determine that's a real person. We'll do authentication. So handling a way for the user coming back with a two-factor authentication, complying to the PSD2. And we also do electronic signatures and seals. So when you want to sign up for a contract or an agreement or something, well, we can provide electronic signatures on different levels, advanced or qualified electronic signatures. And we also do things like electronic seals and timestamping. So, so we provide this whole journey. That's one thing. And also, as I mentioned, across different countries, we have the largest coverage of EIDs in the world. So we cover the EIDs in, in uh, these different countries. So that would be the advantage. And you would have one partner to to deal with and one API to access all these kind of services. Oh, that sounds excellent. And in terms of your clients or resources that you need to get even bigger, stronger and better, what kind of listeners on the podcast should be checking you out right away if they're the ideal client for you, firstly? And then secondly, what kind of resources are you after at the moment to be bigger and stronger who can also be contacting you from that way around? Our primary customer is someone in the regulated industry that has high, we mentioned the anti-money laundering directive that has high requirements. We have the majority of our 1,500 customers are bank, insurance, government, or health. So that's our main areas we are as our customers. 
we do have customers in other areas as well. So of course our solutions are good enough for banks so that can use them as well. But that, that's primarily what we are looking for. We are expanding both in the number of employees. So we are constantly looking for good heads to, to join our team. And we're also expanding into new regions of, of, uh, of Europe and the world. So in general, we are interested in meeting people that both want to join us, but also want to you know, help us into new areas. Excellent. Well, I hope all that comes your way, as I said in the introduction. In the world of tech, as, as we know, having seen it, you've spent all time looking at it, but I've spent enough time looking at it off and on the last 40 years. Things are always changing. Things are always improving. In the world of fintech, we're getting, as it were, smarter and smarter Lego blocks. Ten years ago, you'd have some pretty basic Lego blocks to build your fintech. Now there are back-end companies such as yours who have got very, very sophisticated uh, Lego Lego blocks indeed, which will enable each successive generation of fintech to do more and more ambitious things as they delegate and outsource to specialists more and more complex tasks, leaving them with the sort of the customary value out in the centre. And um, I certainly. Uh, we'll post, as I say, a link to your research, uh, which sounds very interesting about the onboarding and all that kind of stuff, because you can forget all the philosophy jazz. From a practical perspective, you're a marketer now. As all marketers know, it's, it's difficult enough to entice the flies near your web without them landing on your spider's web, walking all around and then flying off when they get bored. So <laughs> you need to make it a bit stickier and a bit smoother. So thank you very much for that, John Eric. And I wish you and Signicat every success in the future. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on this podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion here and... Uh touching on some really interesting topics around identity, which is, as I mentioned, really essential and and a cause of a lot of challenges uh, today. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sitting in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye 
city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me 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 Watch the firelight dance with me